Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to TLS Voices, an occasional series of readings brought to you by The Times Literary Supplement. I was moved by a determination to excel, if not in quality, at any rate in quantity. An ignoble ambition for an author, my readers will no doubt say, but not, I think, altogether ignoble, if an author can bring himself to look at his work as does any other workman. This had become my task. This was the furrow in which my plough was set. This was the thing, the doing of which, had fallen into my hands, and I was minded to work at it with a will. It is not on my conscience that I have ever scamped my work. My novels, whether good or bad, have been as good as I could make them. Had I taken three months of idleness between each, they would have been no better. In this week's TLS, we're celebrating three anniversaries. Shakespeare's birth, traditionally celebrated on April the 23rd, Rupert Brooke's death in 1915, and alongside the sublime playwright and the idolised poet falls the bicentenary of a humble novelist. Anthony Trollope was born on April 24th, 1815. I was born in Keppel Street, Russell Square, and while a baby was carried down to Harrow, where my father had built a house on a large farm, which, in an evil hour, he took on a long lease from Lord Northwick. That farm was the grave of all my father's hopes, ambition and prosperity, the cause of my mother's sufferings and of those of her children, and perhaps the director of her destiny and of ours. My father had been a Wickhamist and a fellow of New College, and Winchester was the destination of my brothers and myself, but as he had friends among the masters at Harrow, and as the school offered an education almost gratuitous to children living in the parish, he, with a certain aptitude to do things differently from others which accompanied him throughout his life, determined to use that august seminary as t'other school for Winchester, and sent three of us there, one after the other, at the age of seven. My father at this time was a chancery barrister practising in London, occupying dingy, almost suicidal chambers at number 23 Old Square Lincoln's Inn. He was, as I have been informed by those quite competent to know, an excellent and most conscientious lawyer, but plagued with so bad a temper that he drove the attorneys from him. In his early days he was a man of some small fortune and of higher hopes. 
These stood so high at the time of my birth that he was felt to be entitled to a country house, as well as to that in Keppel Street, and in order that he might build such a residence, he took the farm. This place he called Julian's, and the land runs up to the foot of the hill on which the school and the church stand, on the side towards London. Things there went much against him. The farm was ruinous, and I remember that we all regarded the Lord Northwick of those days as a cormorant who was eating us up. My father's clients deserted him. He purchased various dark, gloomy chambers in and about Chancery Lane, and his purchases always went wrong. Then, as a final crushing blow, an old uncle, whose heir he was to have been, married and had a family. The house in London was let, and also the house he built at Harrow, from which he descended to a farmhouse on the land, which I have endeavoured to make known to some readers, under the name of Orley Farm. By the time that novel, Orley Farm, was published in 1862, Trollope had already written almost a dozen books, beginning with the McDermott's of Ballycloran in 1847, and including the first instalments of his popular series, The Chronicles of Barsetshire. He had also fled the miseries of London for Ireland, where he took to the active life of a deputy inspector of country post offices. Everything changed for the better. He took to both Irish society and hunting, and he married. As John McCourt details in a new study of the subject, his Irish experiences shaped Trollope's fiction permanently and distinctively. His post office career progressed in tandem with his career as a novelist, and his autobiography, of which we've just heard a brief extract, was notoriously frank about how he brought the same work ethic to bear on both. Even as he was sent to Egypt, the West Indies, or Scotland on post office business, he tasked himself to write. Here's the autobiography again, on an unromantic view of authorship that enabled him to complete a total of 47 novels, five travel books, a two-volume life of Cicero, and much more. As I journeyed across France to Marseille, and made thence a terribly rough voyage to Alexandria, I wrote my allotted number of pages every day. On this occasion, more than once, I left my paper on the cabin table, rushing away to be sick in the privacy of my state room. It was February, and the weather was miserable. But still, I did my work. Labor omnia vincit improbus. I do not say that to all men has been given physical strength sufficient for such exertion as this, but I do believe that real exertion will enable most men to work at almost any season. I had previously to this arranged a system of task work for myself, which I would strongly recommend to those who feel, as I have felt, that labour, when not made absolutely obligatory by the circumstances of the hour, should never be allowed to become spasmodic. There was no day on which it was my positive duty to write for the publishers as it was my duty to write reports for the post office. I was free to be idle if I pleased. But as I had made up my mind to undertake this second profession, I found it to be expedient to bind myself by certain self-imposed laws. When I have commenced a new book, I have always prepared a diary divided into weeks and carried it on for the period which I have allowed myself for the completion of the work. In this I have entered, day by day, the number of pages I have written, so that if at any time I have slipped into idleness for a day or two, the record of that idleness has been there, staring me in the face and demanding of me increased labour, so that the deficiency might be supplied. According to the circumstances of the time, whether my other business might be then heavy or light, or whether the book which I was writing was or was not wanted with speed, 
I have allotted myself so many pages a week. The average number has been about 40. It has been placed as low as 20 and has risen to 112. And as a page is an ambiguous term, my page has been made to contain 250 words. And as words, if not watched, will have a tendency to straggle, I have had every word counted as I went. In the bargains I have made with publishers, I have, not of course with their knowledge but in my own mind, undertaken always to supply them with so many words, and I have never put a book out of hand short of the number by a single word. I may also say that the excess has been very small. I have prided myself on completing my work exactly within the proposed dimensions, but I have prided myself especially in completing it within the proposed time, and I have always done so. There has ever been the record before me, and a week passed with an insufficient number of pages has been a blister to my eye, and a month so disgraced would have been a sorrow to my heart. I have been told that such appliances are beneath the notice of a man of genius. I have never fancied myself to be a man of genius, but had I been so, I think I might well have subjected myself to these trammels. Nothing surely is so potent as a law that may not be disobeyed, and it has the force of the water drop that hollows the stone. A small daily task, if it be really daily, will beat the labours of a spasmodic Hercules. It is the tortoise which always catches the hare. The hare has no chance. He loses more time in glorifying himself for a quick spurt than suffices for the tortoise to make half his journey. I have known authors whose lives have always been troublesome and painful because their tasks have never been done in time. They have ever been as boys struggling to learn their lessons as they entered the school gates. Publishers have distrusted them and they have failed to write their best because they have seldom written at ease. I have done double their work though burdened with another profession, and have done it almost without an effort. I have not once, through all my literary career, felt myself even in danger of being late with my task. I have known no anxiety as to copy. The needed pages far ahead, very far ahead, have almost always been in the drawer beside me. And that little diary, with its dates and ruled spaces, its record that must be seen, its daily, weekly demand upon my industry, has done all that for me. It will be said, perhaps, that a man whose work has risen to no higher pitch than mine has attained has no right to speak of the strains and impulses to which real genius is exposed. I am ready to admit the great variations in brain power which are exhibited by the products of different men, and am not disposed to rank my own very high. But my own experience tells me that a man can always do the work for which his brain is fitted if he will give himself the habit of regarding his work as a normal condition of his life. I therefore venture to advise young men who look forward to authorship as the business of their lives, even when they propose that that authorship be of the highest class known, to avoid enthusiastic rushes with their pens, and to seat themselves at their desks day by day as though they were lawyers' clerks, and so let them sit until the allotted task shall be accomplished. In this week's TLS... Jerry Kimber reviews the new Oxford University Press edition of Trollope's autobiography, while Matthew Ingleby writes about the Barsetshire series, which Oxford has also just republished. He also considers the vexed question of Trollope's reputation. Why is Trollope a less attractive proposition for modern readers than, say, Jane Austen, despite the similarities in their work? As Dr Ingleby points out, Austen's whole body of fiction occupies less space on the bookshelf than this valuable new Barsetshire edition. 
The sense that we might be able to know with some intimacy the whole of Jane Austen entices more of us to invest in the possibility of knowing her at all. Hardly any readers, however, will know the Duke's children in its uncut form. This, the last in Trollope's Palliser sequence, first appeared in a drastically abridged form in 1879. As John Sutherland writes in his... Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Review of the remarkable Folio Society edition of the novel, Trollope had to cut some 65,000 words before it was deemed to be commercially acceptable for publication. The published version is a mere precy, Professor Sutherland writes, in comparison with what Trollope had originally intended. George Orwell once said, I imagine that by any test that could be devised, Carlyle would be found to be a more intelligent man than Trollope, yet Trollope has remained readable and Carlyle has not. With all his cleverness, he had not even the wit to write in plain, straightforward English. Orwell's reminder that, in his words, art is not the same thing as cerebration, suggests some of the pleasures of Trollope's fiction. His easy style, his comic lightness of touch, his observational, journalistic tendency. He is a permanently amused but fair-minded portraitist, with a neat line in showing up pride and other foibles, and a careful way with a set-piece. The first encounter between a new archbishop and his rivals, say, or a meaningful exchange of letters over the breakfast table. In the first chapter of Barchester Towers, for instance, Dr Grantley finds himself caught between sorrow and ambition at the death of his father, the Archbishop, whom he secretly but fervently hopes to succeed. Bishop Grantley died as he had lived, peaceably, slowly, without pain and without excitement. The breath ebbed from him almost imperceptibly, and for a month before his death, it was a question whether he were alive or dead. A trying time was this for the Archdeacon, for whom was designed the reversion of his father's see by those who then had the giving away of episcopal thrones. I would not be understood to say that the Prime Minister had in so many words promised the bishopric to Dr Grantly. He was too discreet a man for that. There is a proverb with reference to the killing of cats, 
and those who know anything either of high or low government places will be well aware that a promise may be made without positive words and that an expectant may be put into the highest state of encouragement though the great man on whose breath he hangs may have done no more than whisper that Mr. So-and-so is certainly a rising man. Such a whisper had been made, and was known by those who heard it, to signify that the cures of the Diocese of Barchester should not be taken out of the hands of the Archdeacon. The then Prime Minister was all in all at Oxford, and had lately passed a night at the house of the Master of Lazarus. Now the Master of Lazarus, which is, by the by, in many respects, the most comfortable, as well as the richest college in Oxford, was the Archdeacon's most intimate friend and most trusted counsellor. On the occasion of the Prime Minister's visit, Dr Grantley was of course present, and the meeting was very gracious. On the following morning, Dr Gwynne, the master, told the Archdeacon that in his opinion the thing was settled. At this time, the bishop was quite on his last legs, but the ministry also were tottering. Dr Grantley returned from Oxford, happy and elated, to resume his place in the palace and to continue to perform for the father the last duties of a son, which, to give him his due, he performed with more tender care than was to be expected from his usual, somewhat worldly manners. A month since, the physicians had named four weeks as the outside period during which breath could be supported within the body of the dying man. At the end of the month, the physicians wandered and named another fortnight. The old man lived on wine alone, but at the end of the fortnight he still lived, and the tidings of the fall of the ministry became more frequent. Sir Lambda Mu Nu and Sir Omicron Pi, the two great London doctors, now came down for the fifth time and declared, shaking their learned heads, that another week of life was impossible, and as they sat down to lunch in the Episcopal dining room, whispered to the Archdeacon their own private knowledge that the ministry must fall within five days. The son returned to his father's room, and after administering with his own hand the sustaining modicum of Madeira, sat down by the bedside to calculate his chances. The ministry were to be out within five days. His father was to be dead within... No, he rejected that view of the subject. The ministry were to be out, and the diocese might probably be vacant at the same period. There was much doubt as to the names of the men who were to succeed to power, and a week must elapse before a cabinet was formed. Would not vacancies be filled by the outgoing men during this week? Dr Grantley had a kind of idea that such would be the case, but did not know, and then he wondered at his own ignorance on such a question. He tried to keep his mind away from the subject, but he could not. The race was so very close, and the stakes were so very high. He then looked at the dying man's impassive, placid face. There was no sign there of death or disease. It was something thinner than of yore, somewhat greyer, and the deep lines of age more marked but as far as he could judge, life might yet hang there for weeks to come. Sir Lambda Mu Nu and Sir Omicron Pi had thrice been wrong, and might yet be wrong thrice again. The old bishop slept during twenty of the twenty-four hours, but during the short periods of his waking moments he knew both his son and his dear old friend, Mr Harding, the archdeacon's father-in-law, and would thank them tenderly for their care and love. Now he lay sleeping like a baby, resting easily on his back, his mouth just open, and his few grey hairs straggling from beneath his cap. His breath was perfectly noiseless, and his thin one hand, which lay above the coverlid, never moved. Nothing could be easier 
than the old man's passage from this world to the next. It was already evening and nearly dark. It was most important that the Prime Minister should know that night that the diocese was vacant. Everything might depend on it, and so, in answer to Mr Harding's further consolation, the Archdeacon suggested that a telegraph message should be immediately sent off to London. Mr Harding, who had really been somewhat surprised to find Dr Grantley, as he thought, so much affected, was rather taken aback, but he made no objection. He knew that the Archdeacon had some hope of succeeding to his father's place, though he by no means knew how highly raised that hope had been. "'Yes,' said Dr Grantly, collecting himself and shaking off his weakness. "'We must send a message at once. "'We don't know what might be the consequence of delay. "'Will you do it?' "'Aye, oh yes, certainly. "'I'll do anything, only I don't know exactly what it is you want.' Dr Grantly sat down before a writing-table, and taking pen and ink, wrote on a slip of paper as follows. "'By electric telegraph. "'For the Earl of Downing Street, or elsewhere, "'the Bishop of Barchester is dead.' "'Message sent by the Reverend Septimus Harding. "'There,' said he, "'just take that to the telegraph office at the railway station "'and give it in as it is. "'They'll probably make you copy it onto one of their own slips, "'that's all you'll have to do. "'Then you'll have to pay them half a crown.' "'And the Archdeacon put his hand in his pocket "'and pulled out the necessary sum. "'Mr Harding felt very much like an errand boy "'and also felt that he was called on to perform his duties as such.' At rather an unseemly time, but he said nothing, and he took the slip of paper and the proffered coin. But you've put my name into it, Archdeacon. Yes, said the other. There should be the name of some clergyman, you know, and what name so proper as that of so old a friend as yourself? The Earl won't look at the name, you may be sure of that, but my dear Mr Harding, pray don't lose any time. Mr Harding got as far as the library door on his way to the station, when he suddenly remembered the news with which he was fraught, when he had entered the poor bishop's bedroom. He had found the moment so inopportune for any mundane tidings that he had repressed the words which were on his tongue, and immediately afterwards all recollection of the circumstance was for the time banished by the scene which had occurred. But Archdeacon, said he, turning back, I forgot to tell you, the ministry are out. Out! ejaculated the Archdeacon, in a tone which too plainly showed his anxiety and dismay although under the circumstances of the moment he endeavoured to control himself. Out! Who told you so? Mr Harding explained that news to this effect had come down by electric telegraph, and that the tidings had been left at the palace door by Mr Chadwick. The archdeacon sat silent for a while, meditating, and Mr Harding stood looking at him. Never mind, said the archdeacon at last. Send the message all the same. The news must be sent to someone, and there is at present no one else in a position to receive it. Do it at once, my dear friend. You know I would not trouble you were I in a state to do it myself. A few minutes' time is of the greatest importance. Mr Harding went out and sent the message, and it may be as well that we should follow it to its destination. Within thirty minutes of its leaving Barchester, it reached the Earl in his inner library. What elaborate letters, what eloquent appeals, what indignant remonstrances he might there have to frame at such a moment may be conceived, but not described. How he was preparing his thunder for successful rivals, standing like a British peer, with his back to the sea-coal fire, and his hands in his breeches' pockets. How his fine eye was lit up with anger, and his forehead gleamed with patriotism. How he stamped his foot as he thought of his heavy associates. How he all but swore as he remembered how much too clever one of them had been. My creative readers may imagine. 
But was he so engaged? No, history and truth compel me to deny it. He was sitting easily in a lounging chair, conning over a new market list, and by his elbow on the table was lying open an uncut French novel on which he was engaged. He opened the cover in which the message was enclosed, and having read it, he took his pen and wrote on the back of it, for the Earl of... with the Earl of's compliments, and sent it off again on its journey. Thus terminated our unfortunate friend's chances of possessing the glories of a bishopric. This week's TLS also features Brian Vickers on the Shakespeare Reflex, Suzanne Hobson on HD's poetic tribute to Shakespeare, William Wooten on the Afterlives of Rupert Brooke, Catherine Sutherland on Carol Phillips, and much more. For a free selection of pieces from this week's issue, go to our website, the-tls.co.uk. You can read the TLS every week in print or via our app, which is available on iTunes and in the Amazon App Store. The TLS. Life in every word. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.